welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large research collaborative network that is currently composed of over 45 cancer centers from across the globe, participating in precision oncology research, clinical trials, scholarly activities, and real-world molecular data and outcomes. You've tuned in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Don Dizon, professor at Lifespan Brown University, and just a phenomenal, phenomenal clinician, researcher, and he is the lead investigator and researcher at Brown when it comes to gynae oncology and pelvic malignancies. For those of you also who do not know Dr. Dizon, you do need to check him out on social media and on Twitter. He is a very effective communicator to uh, the public and to uh, fellow physicians and healthcare providers and colleagues. I've asked Dr. Dizon to join me so we could talk a little bit about precision oncology and the impact of genomic profiling and genomic sequencing on the management of women with various gynecological malignancies. And uh, before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Don Dizon, I would like to plug the show by asking you to find us on all podcast outlets, such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple's Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much every podcast outlet. And write us, subscribe, uh, write a brief review, give us the number of stars you believe we deserve. And as always, refer a friend or a colleague to the show Without further ado, the Keras Molecular Minute podcast with Dr. Don Dizon. Well, it is really uh, just my pleasure and honor to have Dr. Don Dizon on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. He is a social media sensation. A Twitter guru, a TikTok professor, I mean, all, all, all kind of things. But it's really, um, we are going to talk more about science and, and, and the impact of precision oncology on the management of gynecological cancers. Don, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how challenging your schedule could be, so I, I'm very grateful you carved out a few minutes of your schedule. Uh, just a little bit of an introduction to listeners about who you are, where you work, what type of cancers do you treat, and how do you divide your work between uh, clinical work research and social media? You have to talk about social media a little bit. <laughs> I'll try to do that. But first, Chatty, thank you so much for asking me to do this. It's very nice to sit down with a friend uh, and actually chat science for a bit. So I am currently the director for breast and pelvic malignancies at Lifespan Cancer Institute. And I see predominantly breast cancer gynecological malignancies and soft tissue sarcoma in my clinical practice. I also have a, a small clinic as well, once every other week where I do um, sexual health for uh, people treated for cancer. My clinical volume is actually restricted to two days a week, even with all of that. And the rest of the time I, um, I have blocked off for both administrative as well as for research, op um, research endeavors. You know, my research, you know, uh, which usually you think of someone who progresses through academics as becoming a super specialist, you know. So, you know, I thought I was going to be a specialist in recurrent ovarian cancer 
in the phase one clinical space. That was where I started. Um, I've sort of bucked that trend. So I do quite a bit of research in clinical trials for novel, novel therapies in gynecologic malignancy still. But I also um, do quite a bit of outcomes research, whether that's retrospective or looking at patient-reported outcomes. That's taken up a bit of my time. I still do a lot of quality of life work um, based around uh, distress as well as sexual health with a major focus in uh, women who are treated for cancer. And then on a more national scale, I'm, I'm, I'm leading the efforts in how to um, involve you know, digital tools into the uh, clinical trials being run nationally. And, you know, the SWOG at Cancer Research Network asked me to head digital engagement. I'm really, really proud of that. And if anyone knows how to engage the public digitally is, is you. And, and by the way, when, we, when I see you in person, hopefully at some point, I mean, we're hoping for ASCO, but ASCO is virtual. ASCO is virtual. How to tie a bow tie because nobody does a bow tie like you. <laughs> So, so John, I thought it would be nice to talk about gynae cancers and precision oncology. You've been doing this for a while. We're not going to give away your age, but you've been doing this for a while. So clearly the management and how you treat women mm-hmm. with gynecologic malignancies have changed. Is there like a, an inflection point that you mm-hmm. can go back and say, you know what, this is... You know, like I, I did lymphoma and leukemia, so I always think of Gleevec or Rituxin. You mm-hmm. know, like they, they were really inflection points in the management. What was that like for gynae cancers? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there were there were uh, a couple of inflection points. The first was in ovarian cancer with all the work around BRCA mutations and then the availability of PARP inhibitors. That ended up being one of the things that led the treatments in ovarian cancer to much more of a precision space. Now, you know, going into, you know, this, this new year, you know, how precise the treatments are based on PARP is a big question because it's no longer a one-on-one, you know, relationship mutation in BRCA views of PARP. We've kind of expanded that, you know, first with homologous recombination deficiency use of PARP, but now, you know, just using the clinical, finding that someone has platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer, we can use a PARP there too. But that did did open the way towards um, targeted therapy and precision medicine when it came to ovary. I think with endometrial cancer, it's it's evolving, but certainly uh, the relationship with mismatch repair deficiency and activity in immunotherapy really started having us ask that question of where you know, of, of testing for mismatch repair, which is quite a common thing, especially with a subtype of uterine cancers called endometrioid adenocarcinomas. And this this thing that we've known all along that women from families with Lynch syndrome often can pr- uh, present with an endometrial cancer rather than a colorectal cancer. So, Again, looking for mismatch repair deficiencies, finding that group of people who have that option of using uh, a, a checkpoint inhibitor um, specifically has been ongoing, but just like an ovary cancer, that has been sort of flipped. So instead of saying it's, it's a far more tight association, we're now in a, in a situation where we know a checkpoint inhibitor with a novel tyrosine kinase inhibitor, lenvapenem, 
has activity in patients who don't have mismatch repair or have don't have microsatellite and stable tumors. So again, it goes back and forth between really want to inform precision treatments, understanding that we continue to increase the denominator of folks who are eligible for these therapies. And I think for cervical cancer, it was really with the approval of uh, pembrolizumab in that space and pdl one positive cervical cancer who were treated with chemotherapy with radiation. So all of these settings, recurrent disease um, is where it first came out. But more and more, I think there's this ongoing debate about whether or not we should be sending genomic testing even earlier. And I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, conversation we're having. It's interesting, Don, when you mentioned the kind of the inflection points for for these diseases, cervical, ovarian, and, and, and endometrial. It's fascinating to listen to in terms of how this has evolved. So maybe yeah. start to dissect this into the three categories. When we talk about ovarian cancer, where do you think the role of, I mean, you know, there's early stage, curable stage, mm-hmm. uh, you know, women undergo surgery and so forth. How, how are you leveraging the genomic profiling and the sequencing capabilities and availability in managing women with ovarian cancer? And then we'll ask the same question for endometrial, and then we'll ask the same question. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, even still, so we are part, we as an institution have not yet gone to reflex testing for mutation status. So that that just um, refers to sending the tumor as your initial genetic screen. So you're getting genomic information on a tumor at presentation. And if you're finding a BRCA mutation or anything else that suggests a genetic risk, then you turf up to familial testing or uh, inherited predispositions. We are still an institution where we start at the germline and identify folks with a genetic counselor who attends our tumor conferences. And we're starting there rather than sending the tumor. Part of that is because we're using so much more primary chemotherapy because the goal is, well, you know, when we take people to the operating room, we want everyone to have no residual disease at the end of the treatment. That's a pretty high bar, but we're giving chemotherapy more frequently. I think where the discussion is coming up, though, is uh, sending that genomic testing at the point of diagnosis. And I think it's, it's a very, you can make a very cogent argument as to why you would do that. The way I see it, understanding whether there's a somatic or a genetic mutation in BRCA, finding that evidence of HRD or homologous recombination deficiency, finding evidence of um, loss of heterozygosity, all of these things. You're not necessarily picking patients for PARP inhibitor therapy after primary chemo, but knowing if those mutations exist, you are informing people on the degree of benefit. And I still think that's very worthwhile. So the dilemma then comes in where someone tests negative for a BRC mutation on germline testing. You know, it's a conversation I'm having with patients today on whether or not to send genomic testing during the chemotherapy phase so that we have it available at the end of chemo so we can discuss the, uh, the implications towards benefit on whether or not to do a PARP inhibitor. 
So more and more, I'm finding people want to have that information before they end their adjuvant therapy. That may be a silly question, but as the host, I'm allowed silly questions. The HRD prevalence mm-hmm. is different mm-hmm. between early stage versus late stage. In other words, your expectations of how often you might find that in an early stage patient who's undergoing surgery is different mm-hmm. than egg disease? We would think so. But again, it's like, remember, we honestly, so 80% of patients are diagnosed with advanced disease. We are typically not offering PARP inhibitor therapy for patients with stage one ovarian cancer. There's some debate on whether or not we should be offering for patients with stage two ovarian cancer. So much of the work we're looking at is done in that sort of advanced disease setting. It goes to reason that, you know, as a tumor progresses, gets larger, accumulates more mutations, that their findings of homologous recombination deficiency might be more prevalent. So right now for early stage disease, ovarian cancer who undergo surgery and receive adjuvant therapy, after chemotherapy, the standard of care observation, uh, uh, or you still might recommend a PARP inhibitor in those who have HRD? According to the FDA label, it's for advanced ovarian cancer. Now what we know about that stage two population is that they have a risk of recurrence that is far greater than those with stage one disease. And it almost is as high as people with stage three. But technically, stage three and stage four patients, uh, patients with stage three and stage four disease are the ones we would be offering PARP maintenance to. I do think it's reasonable given the, the known recurrence risk is higher and that most of our contemporary clinical trials that are being done on a cooperative group level are including stage two in advanced disease clinical trials, it would be reasonable to offer it to them as well. Aside, uh, aside from the PARP inhibitors and the HRD, are you seeing anything happen mm-hmm. in the ovarian space, the specific mutations or anything that is uh, on the radar screen that's exciting you? Not, not yet. I mean, I, have, I, I continue to look for, you know, I think we, we like to borrow from what's happening in other uh, other tumor types. So looking at PIK3CA mutations and whether that's going to be relevant, what's happening in this context of P53 mutations, which are very common in serous carcinomas. You know, I am currently doing some, doing a clinical trial of immunotherapy in clear cell cancers, ovary, cervix, uterine, all, all extra renal clear cell cancers. So I'm actually very interested with my data set to go back and see what are the immune immune marker predictors of response to that. Um, you know, so for now, at least, um, you know, when we do send genomic testing, you know, we're looking for those needles um, in those haystacks. Although we acknowledge like everyone else does that finding a, an actionable mutation that has shown benefits in say lung cancer does not mean you'll see the same benefit in ovary. And we've seen that time and time again. Okay. So let's shift to endometrial. Where are you, mm-hmm. how are you lever- leveraging the availability of genomic profiling and sequencing in managing women with endometrial cancer? So for the most part, we are looking at um, just routine pathologic staging thus far. So pathology can give us staining for ER and PR. 
It can also give a staining for mismatch repair proteins. I have found it useful, though, for people who relapse with endometrial cancer to send genomic testing because it gives me that wider array of information that, that, that might be very beneficial to me. It gives me PDL1. It will give me um, BRCA mutations, if you know, um, and then it will give me all these, uh, you know, genomic information, including MSI levels, and, and you know, to to help inform treatment decisions. That's great. Cervical cancer? Are you seeing that, or still under investigation? Anything happening there in terms of uh, gen- genomic profiling? You know, I think with cervix, we are still, you know, I am sending it, uh, particularly after relapse. And again, not looking for anything specific beyond just PDL1 levels, but with the hope that I can provide something if chemotherapy plus bevacizumab doesn't work. So again, it's really that expedition to try to find targetable mutations. I have to say also, I mean, I wonder if there are opportunities to find signatures that might tell you who might respond to something versus another, right? Like there's a possibility that could actually happen. So in the field of gynecology, what are maybe the top couple of studies or clinical trials that you really, that are incorporating precision medicine into managing patients and you're you're just uh, waiting for, are there anything happening from a clinical trial front that you think might have a clinical impact? You know, I think for the most part, lots of our trials, uh, we're not seeing many phase three clinical trials at this point. And I think the things we've learned um, regarding PARP inhibitors, um, we've kind of answered many of the questions. So some of the trials we're looking at now are whether or not there's activity in re treating patients with a PARP inhibitor, whether or not using a PARP inhibitor in the maintenance space makes the drugs inactive in the recurrent treatment space, or whether or not they do work at that point. We're looking at combinations, still looking at combinations of PARP inhibitors with immunotherapy. There was a Paolo one trial that showed a PARP inhibitor plus bevacizumab has a role to play. But I think what we're trying to do is, again, increase the umbrella of people who can benefit from the drugs that we know are, are targeted treatments. Um, and it's been a surprising thing, quite frankly, to show you can actually improve outcomes, whether or not someone has a known mutation in BRCA, whether genetic or somatic, uh, and still you know, provide benefit because they have HRD or because you found LOH or because they're platinum sensitive. So again, these these opportunities sort of to to improve outcomes are still there, and I think maybe combination or sequencing of treatment will become more important. Yeah. So for example, we're we're actually about to launch a trial with Pfizer here, and it was built on a trial that was done at MD Anderson with Jennifer Litton's group on breast that looked at women with a known mutation in BRCA who are presenting with new breast cancer in Dr. Linton's study showing that uh, neoadjuvant PARP inhibitor, in, in this case it was talizoparib, was effective therapy. And patients could go to surgery and not see chemotherapy and you still saw a pathologic complete response rate. We're taking that concept and we're screening for BRCA mutations and putting 
eligible women on new adjuvant telezop than a feasibility study that's hopefully going to open in the next couple of months here in Brown to see if we can document the same thing. Can we actually spare women with a known BRCA mutation from chemotherapy before surgery for a newly diagnosed ovarian cancer? Yeah. And PARP inhibitors, are they exchangeable? I mean, some trials look at one PARP inhibitor, another or another one. I'm always curious. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many PARP inhibitors are there, but is there any reason to think one is better than another? Well, there's four that have been published, <laughs> have published results in ovary. Talazopra hasn't been studied much in gyne. You know, there are theories as to why they're different in terms of their degree of PARP trapping. Um, we don't have a comparative study that looks at, you know, olaparib versus rucaparib versus niraparib, so we can define a um, preferred PARP. So the answer is no, we don't have that kind of data. But I think practically speaking, many institutions and many pathway programs are looking at these as interchangeable, whether or not that's true, and coming down to efficacy and toxicity, as well as affordability as endpoints to see which one will be the recommended PARP on pathway, for example. Absolutely. Don, before I, I let you go, I'm going to ask you to put on your futuristic hat. And I'm going to mm -hmm. say, okay, and you know, pre pretend that you are doing a TikTok video, but you have the futuristic hat. <laughs> And you're trying to project how you're going to manage patients in five years. I mean, what, where, where, where is the field heading? Five years from now, me and you sitting down, <laughs> the same conversation. How do you think the conversation would go? Well, I think more and more people are going to have genomic testing at the front end of therapy. And we're, we'll be able to better individualize treatments, particularly in ovary. I, I do believe chemotherapy will still be a mainstay of treatments across the gynecological malignancies. And the biggest question will be, and still is, whether or not we can uh, utilize that uh, information to make smart, uh, data-driven considerations and treatment options based on, that, based on what we're finding by pathways. So that's where I hope we're going. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it. I mean, I think it looks like at some point, treatment will be a little bit more individualized, not for everyone. Yeah. But I mean, there's clearly a path there. Yes, I agree. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, look, this was a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, we did not take a lot of uh, your time, but uh, a lot <laughs> of fun to know how things are shifting around in gynae oncology. And uh, any final, uh, final uh, words to our listeners? No, I, I, you know, what I will say for your listeners is I look forward to the day when we can meet in person because I do not envision a world where meetings are all held by Zoom. I'm telling you, <laughs> we like, you know, the human connection, we, you know, I, I, I think uh, people are going to hug each other and not let go yeah. next to the first time you meet people. I think what it is, I hadn't realized how important traveling and networking was to my satisfaction as an academic oncologist. <laughs> I know. We, we used to complain about it, right? You like complain, like, yeah. oh my God, I'm still, and, and now we're like, oh my God, we, I need to, but, but you know, there is, a, I do think there is value, in the virtual platform where, yes. um, you know, 
not every meeting you need to travel to. I mean, there, we have to be selective into where to go and, and what to do. Yes, and I think something like a hybrid concept is going to be something everyone should start looking at. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Don. I appreciate you taking thank you, time. And, uh, thank you for spending time with us on the Keras Molecular Minute. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast and to sp- for you to spend spending some time with us with Dr. Don Dizon from Brown University and Lifespan Cancer Center. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode, but please let me know how you think the show is going. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. And, uh, you know, always uh, find us on all podcast outlets, uh, subscribe, rate, review, and refer a friend or a colleague. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Until next time, take care.